Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Chris Geis, and this is episode 20, recorded on Tuesday, July 23rd, 2019. The title of this episode is Life at Lean with Dan Netting. In this episode, I chat with Dan Netting, the creator of Life at Lean and the Track Academy, both of which are great resources geared towards helping motorcyclists build better riding techniques, better understanding of their machines, and getting the most out of doing track days. Dan and I answer some questions from one of my listeners, and I share some tips I've developed. So, you want to ride a motorcycle? Well, you've come to the right place, because this is the So You Want to Ride a Motorcycle podcast. Before we get into the main part of tonight's show, I just wanted to give some shout outs and uh, go over a couple things. So Tony Terabellini wrote in to say he really enjoyed the interview I did with Keith Code. So Tony, thank you very much for your voicemail and I really appreciate your feedback. David J. Baxter and I were messaging a little on Facebook. David currently rides a 2000 Suzuki Intruder 1500 and lives in Springfield, Massachusetts. His first bike was a 1982 Yamaha Virago 920, and he mentioned that he's a big fan of shaft drive motorcycles. He's been riding since he was a kid and started on a 70cc Honda. David also wanted me to share the information on some instructional DVDs that he came across recently. It's the Ride Like a Pro series, which is produced by Jerry Motorman Palladino, who he said is a retired motorcycle officer. David said he has been getting a lot out of the DVDs, and the DVDs and book can be purchased at a very reasonable cost. So check that out, and I'll put the link in the show notes. I haven't had a chance to really take a look myself yet, and I haven't seen the, the DVDs and the book, but uh, by all means, check it out and let me and David know what you think. So David, thank you very much for that. Also, Alex Petzl is a listener and was a big player, actually, in the 2019 Motorcycle Podcasters Challenge and helped us out a lot on the Throttle Podcast team. Alex said that he heard an ep the episode where I mentioned that listener Adrian Northam was looking at getting back into riding and said he'd reach out to him as he has a lot of experience with metric cruisers. So Alex and Adrian, I hope you guys got a chance to hook up. I think that's really cool. So thank you to everyone who's writing in and contacting me. Uh, it's really rewarding to see the community that's starting to form around this podcast and how different listeners are reaching out to help other listeners. So thank you all. I really appreciate it. And if you haven't already, please drop me an email or fill out the contact form on my, on my website or message me on Facebook or Instagram and let me know that you're out there and anything you want to let me know about the show. You can always email me at soyouwanttoride at yahoo.com or use the link in the podcast notes to my website where you find all my contact details. Also, if you'd like to help support the podcast, you can make a donation using PayPal by going to paypal.me slash Christopher or click the donate link at the upper right on my website. So I mentioned that I had some tips to share. Uh, it kind of reminds me, you know, the second episode I did, which was to gear or not to gear, where I, I covered kind of in general the ideas of, of wearing gear and, you know, why I think it's a good idea for people to wear gear and why I advocate wearing gear. And, you know, I had mentioned I was going to do a follow-up episode, which unfortunately I never did, you know, on specific gear that, that I wear and, you know, the reasons and what I've gotten out of it and et cetera. So I just wanted to touch on a little bit of that now, particularly now that we're in the, you know, the summer, the, 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 the heat of the summer, so to speak. Um, so just some cu couple things that came to mind that I thought I would share for, particularly for newer riders, but just for anyone who maybe hasn't really thought of it, considered it before. So the first thing is, I think it was probably 
my second season riding because uh, I started first when I first started riding was I believe it was like summertime it was like July August so I kind of you know had a year of riding so the following summer um, just because of the heat and whatever and it can it can get pretty hot on Long Island I mean we are fairly far north but you know we're surrounded by water so it does get pretty humid so you know even if it's like 80s mid upper 80s it can get pretty uncomfortable so one of the things I started doing was switching to white gear you know or at least light colored gear and I have to tell you it's made a huge huge difference you know when when actually when Gina and I bought our first gear some of it we got when we were at the International Motorcycle Show which was I guess the winter like december 2015 it was like before well actually no maybe it was 2016 but, but anyway yeah actually it was, must have been 2016 but the, the point is that it, just for whatever reason you know just we got a good deal on some equipment at cycle gear and uh just wanted to look cool and all this kind of stuff the gear that we bought was was black you know so we both had black helmets and black jackets and whatever and and the gear's good and we still have it and, you know, we use it in the, the cooler weather and whatever. But anyway, the point is, you know, you kind of learn. So come that next summer, I was like, wow, like this, this black stuff is really hot in the sun. So I ended up buying another helmet in the, basically the same helmet, a slightly better version of the built helmet that I had in black that has the built-in Bluetooth communications. Uh, I bought the slightly upgraded model that's also a modular helmet with the built-in Bluetooth so Gene and I can talk on the intercoms, which is really beneficial. Uh, but I got it in white. I got a white mesh jacket, and then also I found um, gloves, mesh gloves. I started using mesh gloves and even found almost white, kind of light gray colored, like light colored mesh gloves. And I have to say, like, it just made a huge, huge difference in comfort level. Uh, you know, I, I, in fact, I was talking to someone recently who said, you know, he knows people who say, well, there's studies that have been done that, that says it doesn't matter, you know, what the color of your gear is. But both he and I have experienced the fact that wearing light colored gear does matter. And it's just kind of common sense, right? It's like light colored white things reflect more light. You know, if you've ever in the in the, the hot weather, you know, touched the paint of a car, you know, a, a dark color car, like a black painted car is going to be a lot more, a lot hot more hot to the touch than a, on a light or a white colored car, you know, being on, in the interior of a car, if it's a lighter interior, you know, it, it doesn't pick up and hold the heat as much. You know, if you've ever looked at, uh, you know, like a concrete, you know, light colored driveway versus an asphalt driveway, you, you know what I'm talking about. So anyway, that, that's something I highly recommend checking out. If you are in an area that gets very hot or, you know, you, you have trouble with the heat and, and just un, being uncomfortable and you want to get more comfortable, definitely look into getting light or white colored gear. Yes, it gets dirty quicker. You know, I've got the problem. It's kind of interesting. My, my mesh jacket, which like I said, is white. You know, I, I get a chance to ride a lot more often than Gina does. And she has the same basic jacket now. And you put them side by side and mine almost looks gray, obviously because of all the dirt and stuff in, in the air <laughs> that we're breathing, um, you know, that you're coming into contact with when, when you ride. So there's that, you know, so it doesn't stay as clean or whatever, and you got to keep up on it a little bit, but it's way, way more comfortable. So something I'd recommend. The other thing that I do for hot weather riding, and this works out really well when I take weekend trips, you know, because I don't have a ton of luggage on the Z900 RS, but, you know, want to be able to, you know, pack some things and have some flexibility in my clothing. So about two seasons ago, I think I bought a pair of Bond armored pants. I actually have a shirt as well, which I'll get into in a minute. Um, but so the Bond Armored Pants, they're actually, they, they have a couple styles of pants for different uh, seasons, for you know, for, for different climates. The ones that I got are like a, a mesh, um, I, I hate to say it as a guy, but it's, it's almost like a pantyhose type material, just like heavier, um, that has pockets for armor. So you've got, 
you know, armor on your on your knees, on your hips, on the backside, on your tailbone. Um, so it's like really good coverage. And then I wear those under regular jeans. And so the advantage I find is, you know, I've got the advantage of having regular jeans. So, you know, if I just go for a weekend, what I'll do is bring the Bon Armor pants, which I can wear under the jeans. And then when I get to my destination, I'm hanging out for the weekend. I just wear the jeans. And so it's a lot more comfortable than if you had like armor jeans or something like that, or having to deal with taking armor out of the jeans and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so, so that's something I found really convenient too. I'll put a link in the show notes. So, so Bon Armor, they've got, they've got some good stuff. Now I also had gotten similarly, they, they have jackets like that with kind of this very light, breathable mesh material that holds the armor. Now, when I first got it two seasons ago, I was actually wearing that just as my outer jacket. And in the really hot weather, it was awesome. It's very comfortable and it's good because it would give impact protection. But I was thinking about it going, uh, it's just not a good solution for uh, abrasion protection because you know if I were to hit the pavement wearing that thing, my concern is that the material is so light you know, and, and breathable that it would just probably shred really easy. So, you know, as soon as you hit the ground, you know, it probably would shred and then, uh, you know, the armor is going to fall out. So yeah, you'd have some initial impact protection, but just didn't seem like the, the best option. So after that, I bought, um, product called dragon liners, which is actually like undergarments, you know, kind of like, like long johns. If you think of kind of like thermal underwear kind of thing, like top and and pants, um, but made out of Kevlar. So those are really good. So I've, I've sometimes done that. It's in the very hot weather. It's a bit much to wear like the bond armor with the Kevlar, you know, the, um, dragon liners over and then jeans over. Uh, it, it's not impossible. It's not like super bulky. It's not like uncomfortable. It's just a lot of material. So it can be really kind of warm. But I found that to be an excellent combo in terms of flexibility of protecting myself both for, you know, um, impact protection and abrasion protection, and then also just having a regular pair of jeans. You could definitely look at doing something like, you know, getting Kevlar jeans. You know, there, there are a lot of options that way, like Tobacco Motorwear has products like that. Um, the, the only thing with that, and I'm not saying specifically to tobacco motorwear, but I would watch out for that. The thing I like about the Dragon Liners is it's basically your entire body, and I have the shirt as well, is covered in Kevlar. So it's at least one, one layer of Kevlar, no areas that are exposed. Some of the less expensive Kevlar jeans only have Kevlar in kind of the where, where you're likely to hit the pavement. So like knee, backside, you know, stuff like that, which is fine. It's probably done for a reason because basically that's, the areas that you're most susceptible, you know, to, to being injured, you know, and getting a road rash or whatever. But I kind of figure why not have full protection? Because I've seen videos and heard stories of people coming off of motorcycles on, you know, freeways and highways and stuff like that at 70, 80 miles an hour. And, you know, you slide and tumble and all this kind of stuff. So I kind of figure the more complete protection you have, the better. And so, you know, where let's say with Kevlar jeans, you'll have like a heavy denim material that is then reinforced in places with Kevlar. With the dragon liners, you've got you know a garment that's entirely Kevlar, and then an additional layer of Kevlar in those areas that are susceptible, like the knees, you know, the hips, and and that kind of thing. So, anyway, so uh, I'll, I'll put the I'll put links in the show notes for that stuff. So I've, I found that really helpful. So the Bon Armor and the Dragon Jeans products, and actually regarding the Bon Armor shirt or kind of shirt jacket, one of the things I realized recently that I, I think I'm going to keep doing is so 
you know, the more I ride and the more I listen, particularly like to Fast Eddie and just other other people, and the more I think about doing track days, the more I think about the effectiveness of my gear in terms of pr- protection. You know, and so I know it's kind of a common thing, like especially if you buy a less expensive riding jacket. You know that there's usually decent armor like elbows and shoulders, although you know it may be just the bare minimum CE level one instead of CE level two, which you can get if you want. Uh, but usually there's no back protector, like there's something in the pocket, you know, where the back protector would go, but it's usually not a very good back protector. So the other day I decided to let me actually take a look at my mesh jacket that I normally wear in the hot weather, the one I mentioned before. Um, and, and sure enough, you know, I, I knew it was nothing major, but I pulled this thing out and basically it was just like, I'd say maybe a quarter inch piece of foam, you know, now it, it's not like, it's not like the, you know, the description of the jacket, because I, I went to the Cycle Gear website, it's not like the description of the jacket says it has back armor. It, it, it doesn't, you know, it, it mentions something about, uh, I don't know, was it like a foam memory pad or something like that. So it's not like false advertising where they're claiming that it's armor. But anyway, I was like, okay, you know, there's got this little quarter inch piece. This is not going to do anything. You know, maybe just barely you'd get a little additional abrasion protection over what you get with the material on the jacket. But so it got me interested in starting looking for replacement armor, you know, and I went to Cycle Gear. It's just a place I go because it's close by and it's just it's easy for me to order stuff online and then return at the store because it's you know, only 15 minutes away. But there's other places, Revzilla and whatever, can get replacement armor. But anyway, the, the point is, so, you know, I started looking at different options. And what is nice is that piece of foam is basically is a template that shows you know, the size and shape back protector that would fit in the pocket. So I went to Cycle Gear and I kind of was comparing the different options. And, and there was definitely some, like I could probably get one from Force Field or uh, I forget some of the other brands. Um, Revit has one. There was, there was a couple that would fit. You know, very, various prices, not that expensive, you know, anywhere from 30 to $60, depending on the manufacturer and, you know, how good a piece it was. But then I was looking at the fact that I've got this Bond Armor jacket, which actually has some good you know, really decent quality armor in it. So what I actually ended up doing, at least as a temporary solution, particularly went for this most recent trip down to uh, Pennsylvania for the Loud Pipes meetup, I just took all the armor out of the mesh jacket. And then what I did was just over like a t-shirt or I I also have like those uh, cycle gear sells like these, you know, wicking t-shirts, you know, for hot weather. So I either had a regular t-shirt or or one of those, uh, what do they call them? Heat out t-shirts. At least that's what it was called when I bought them. I think they changed the name. It's like, cool cool r or something like that now uh but anyway so you know i just had a shirt and then my bond armor shirt right so i've got the the armor and the, the armor and the bond armor shirt is actually pretty good like the uh it's not just an elbow piece but it's actually elbow and it covers like your entire forearm so that's even better than than what's in any of the other jackets i have in terms of the size of the pocket for a piece of armor and then it's got a nice, you know, back protector and good shoulder protectors. And then I wore my mesh jacket over it because, like I said, that Bond Armor shirt or jacket has not got any kind of abrasion resistance, but it's very good impact resistance or impact protection. And then so I put my, my uh, I guess it's not, not built. It's a, what do you call it? I forget the other Cycle Gear brand. Um, anyway, I'll put it in the show notes. But, you know, wearing, um, oh, Sadichi, wearing that jacket over. So then I've got, the mesh jacket, which is the abrasion resistance. I've got the Bon Armor shirt, which is really good impact resistance. And then the, you know, the, the wicking shirt underneath. And, and it's actually is a really good combo. It's actually very comfortable. So I may just kind of do that. I may, I may just take the armor out of all my jackets, you know, my, my, you know, fall jacket, my winter jacket, whatever, and just always wear them over this Bon Armor, 
shirt slash jacket. So definitely check that out as an option. That's a way to do things. And I just was looking at it going, what's the point of buying like new armor for every jacket I have when I could just do that? And I could even, if I wanted, you know, upgrade the back protector in, in the Bond armor shirt, like if I wanted to go to like a force field or something that that's even better than what came with that, with that piece of clothing. And then the other thing I wanted to mention is, and I don't know if I've mentioned this in past episodes, but on various weekend trips that I've done, and I don't do a lot, but you know, when I get a chance, I do like to take a weekend trip. Like I met up recently with the guys from Loud Pipes. They had a meetup, and you know, I went down to Southern New Jersey for uh, the Vintage Motorcycle Festival. And you know, like the last last year when I did the Motorcycle Podcasters Challenge, you know, did some weekend trips, which is really great. Um, but the the point is that for me on the motorcycles that I have, you know, the Vulcan S, which I have taken for weekends, now it's the Z nine hundred RS. Um, I'm just not a I'm not a big fan of riding highway. I, I call it you know uh, pounding the slab, you know pounding the pavement kind of thing. Um, I definitely enjoy more you know you know not leisurely necessarily, but you know just you know just riding for scenery. You know just riding whatever along the beach or riding through the mountains or the twisties or whatever. Like really enjoyable riding. When it comes to long distances and just highway miles, you know to get where you're going, it's not really my cup of tea. You know, in cases like this, okay, I want to take the motorcycle, and so I do it. You know, I'm not going to trailer the motorcycle. Um, but my point is, like, long-distance highway stuff just never really been my thing. And in particular, I've noticed coming back from a weekend trip, you know, let's say I'm southern Jersey, Pennsylvania, you know, I've got a five-hour ride especially at the end of a weekend and if I'm doing a lot of riding like in the mountains or whatever, by the time I'm heading back home to Long Island, you know, I'm a little bit beat, a little bit spent and just found myself fatiguing pretty easily, you know, on the ride back, particularly on Jersey Turnpike, you know, which is not very scenic or anything like that. And there's a lot, it can be a lot of traffic and, you know, you, you really got to watch what you're doing and, you know, watch for cars that are out, out to get you kind of thing. But anyway, so the thing is that you know, last couple trips when I've been coming home, you know, I found like I can normally do, let's say, you know, hour and a half, hour and a half stint for me is pretty good. Two hours, you know, kind of pushing it. Um, but the last two trips, I just found like the ride back, you know, it was like half an hour, 45 minutes. And I was kind of like done. Um, and I just wanted to get off the bike and stretch and, you know, drink some water or get a soda or something like that. And just basically just because of what I was experiencing body wise, you know, it's like just feeling kind of cramped and, you know, just muscles tense and just, you know, just kind of like almost antsy, like just wanting to get off the bike, you know, in some cases getting some like numbness in the groin area, which, you know, for anyone who's ridden bicycles, you know, like the problem that can happen with that, you know, for guys. Um, and you know, in fact, they even have, it's been doing it for a couple of years now, but special seats you can get for bicycles, right, to help with that because there are various nerves and things that get pinched and can cause discomfort and whatever. At any rate, so the, the point is two, two things have actually been helping out with that. One is the more I've been learning about riding technique, particularly oriented towards the track, and the idea of not gripping the handlebars too hard has helped a lot because I've realized how light a touch you really can get away with, you know, holding the handlebars. And just that, you know, tends to uh, relax my my hands and my wrists and my arms so they don't get kind of tense and worked up. So that's helped a lot. And it's actually improved my writing technique as well, like on the twisties and things like that. But the biggest thing, and this is kind of something I stumbled on by accident, is, you know, since I did the corner college with Tom Walker 
and all the reading I've been doing, like Twist of the Wrist and watching the DVDs and things and becoming conscious of body position, I've been experimenting a lot with you know, upper body position on the bike. Uh, and in particular, um, it's, it's really kind of interesting. Like even, even high speed riding, like on the highway, you know, if I'm doing whatever it is, 65 plus miles an hour, you know, coming to a bend in the road, you know, and, and on high speed roads like that, you know, the curves and things are not particularly sharp, but whatever, you know, you can have some decent, decent curves. Um, what I've been experimenting with is minimizing leaning the bike. So you know, keeping the bike as vertical as possible. Now, you know, in cases like that, you're never leaning enough that it's really an issue. But the thing is, in general, and like you could watch Fast Eddie's videos or, you know, other other people talk about this, you, you re- it's to your advantage, really, to keep the bike as, as vertical as possible, no matter how sharp the turn is. Now, obviously, if you're doing really sharp, high-speed turns, you're going to get a good amount of lean, and that's where dragging your knee comes and all that kind of stuff. But even there, you always want to keep the bike as vertical as possible, right, which is why racers hang off the bike and drag a knee because that lets you keep the bike as vertical as possible. And the advantage being that that's how the bike works best because you get the most out of the suspension travel and being able to absorb bumps and shocks and things as, you know, going around curves. curves. So anyway, so the point is I'm experimenting with that. And I found that, you know, even like, like high speeds on the highway, instead of like leaning me and the bike, I just shift the weight of my upper body, you know, to the left, if I'm making a left turn to the right, if I'm making a right turn focused on keeping the bike as vertical as possible. And it's been really interesting how natural that's become. And actually, I don't know just how much easier it is to control the bike. So the, the point is, so, you know, I've been experimenting with that and, you know, opportunities to, to ride twisties and things I've experimented. And I don't think I'm, you know, hanging off the bike a great deal, but experimenting with hanging off the bike a little bit. So like in corner college, you know, what, what Tom taught us was, you know, getting like half a cheek, you know, when, when you're starting out, yeah, okay, eventually when you're doing track days and you're getting really good at cornering and high speed cornering and whatever, yeah, you'll get to a point where you, you can just hang your whole body off the bike and you watch MotoGP, World Superbike, Moto America, like you see those guys doing that. But, you know, you're starting out and trying to get the feel for it. You know, the recommend, recommendation is, you know, don't shift on the seat more than like half a cheek. And that's enough to get your body weight over and you can really experiment with getting your weight off the bike, off the center of the bike and keeping the bike as vertical as possible. So where this is all bringing me is coming back from Jersey. You know, I, I stopped like two or three times after 45 minutes because I'm like, I, I just I can't stay on the bike. I'm too uncomfortable. I got to get off, stretch my legs, walk around and whatever. So after the second or third time of doing that, I was like, I don't know. I want, I want to get home. I didn't want to be home too late. I knew I was going to be hitting traffic. And so I was like, I can't keep stopping like this. You know, it's just not, not that efficient and it really shouldn't be necessary. So I was like, you know what, what, what if I kind of experiment with my body position a little bit? And so even though it's not necessary for handling the bike or anything, um, and let me even back, back up a second, right? So what I have done in the past is, the Z900 RS has, it's not really a bench seat, but it's a fairly flat seat, right? So unlike like a sport bike, right, which has a very shaped seat for the rider, and then if there's a pillion, you know, it's it's a raised like little pillion seat. The Z900 RS has one seat for, you know, for rider and passenger. It is like a little sculpted up towards the back of the, the rider's position and, you know, the pillion part part is a little bit higher and i don't know if if it's the reason one i guess you know it does make the pillion if you're carrying a passenger a little bit higher so there's a better chance they can see over the top of your head 
but the other thing it does is, you know, on a sport bike, the reason for that shape is so that when you tuck down, you can put your backside, you can slide your backside back against the, the stop of the seat, and it kind of helps hold you in position. So particularly for acceleration and stuff like that. So, you know, I guess maybe that's kind of in part how the Z900 RS, why the seat is shaped that way instead of just being like a, a totally a flat bench like you do see on some bikes. So anyway, right, so in the past, what I've done to try to, you know, move around and loosen up is just slide back on the seat at sometimes even actually sitting on the pillion seat. Unfortunately, I'm tall. I'm six foot, right? And I have pretty long arms. So I can do that, you know, even at high speed, I, I can just, you know, slide my weight back and you know, kind of stretch my back and, and just kind of arch over. And, you know, I can do that safely, you know, with, without having any problems controlling the motorcycle. And that helps a little bit, but I never found it really gave me much relief or continued comfort so I could just keep riding comfortably. So this time what I did coming back from, from Southern Jersey was I was playing around with the, the half cheek thing. So what I would do is, you know, as, as I'm riding, I would just put half a cheek off either to the left or to the right and just kind of twist my back a little bit or whatever. So I could still comfortably and safely con- you know, hold the handlebars and control the motorcycle. Um, but the interesting thing is I found that that really helped dramatically. It, I, I didn't really expect that it would, but just shifting that way, you know, kind of shifting the, the weight, the, the, you know, the, the weight on my butt or the, the pressure point, I guess, and shifting in the seat and being able to twist my body actually gave some real relief. And so the, 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 shorts, the short end of the whole story is I actually was able, the last stint, even though it was the end of the ride and you would think would have been the toughest, I actually was able to do like the last two and a half hours, one stretch, I didn't get off the bike. I, ba- I basically just ran the tank till it was almost empty. You know, I, I knew I had the range. Um, you know, but I just kept going. I didn't, you know, didn't have to stop for gas or anything. And and just by doing that, just when I needed to, when I was getting uncomfortable, just shifting, you know, one cheek to the left or one cheek to the right, just riding that. I mean, even, yeah, I would, I would ride like that for a couple miles or whatever it was to feel like refreshed and relieved. And then I was fine, you know, get back in a normal riding position until it got uncomfortable again. And then I would do it, you know, maybe the other way. So anyway, just something I found, you know, that worked for me. I've never heard of anyone, you know, talk about doing that. It may be something, you know, that you, you people have tried. If so, like, let me know, you know, or if you do decide to try it out and see if it works for you, let me know if it works. But uh, I just thought it was a useful, useful little tip I'd pass along. So hopefully that long winded explanation made sense. All right. So with uh, my tips out of the way there, I guess it's about time to get into the show. So now on to my interview with Dan Netting, which I really enjoyed a lot. I hope you enjoy it. And here we go. Joining me tonight is my special guest, Dan Netting, who is located just a hop, skip and a jump across the pond over in Essex in the United Kingdom. Dan is a motorcyclist, track rider, author, social media expert and creator of the Life at Lean and Track Academy social media destinations and track day training resources. He has 25,000 email subscribers, over 13,000 Facebook followers, uh, over 31,500 YouTube subscribers with 60 videos on his channel and also dozens of articles on his website about riding and doing track days. So welcome, Dan. Thank you very much. Good to have you. Good to be here. So I just thought I'd just uh, tell you a little bit just about how I came to know you and, and about you. Um, I, I really, I guess, was maybe within the last year, I guess, I stumbled on some of your videos on YouTube, you know, about uh, yep. track riding and things of that sort. And, uh, you know, like I mentioned to you just earlier, you know, I haven't done it yet, but I've kind of gotten interested in the idea of doing track days. You know, I've, I've ridden 
enough. I've got enough miles under my belt that it's like, hey, you know, maybe it's time to go to a place where I can practice technique in a more controlled environment and stretch the legs on my motorcycle a little, you know, that kind of thing, which I'm, I'm sure we'll get into because I know that's some of the things that you kind of experienced, you know, as you were developing your, your skills and abilities and whatnot. So anyway, so I started following you on YouTube. You know, I've watched a lot of your videos. I really liked your material. Um, and so actually it was quite a while I've thought of having you on the podcast and now, you know, finally we got around, got around to working it out. It, it's also interesting that a couple episodes ago, maybe it was like about six episodes ago, I was going to interview a guy I know, Tom Walker, who, um, is a motorcycle instructor. He, he teaches in, in the U S what's called the, the basic rider course for the motorcycle safety foundation. Uh, and I had done a course with him. It's, it's done in a parking lot. So it, you know, not, it's not as, as, uh, doesn't allow you to stretch the legs as much and do as much as you can on a track. But he put this course together called Corner College where, you know, he, he introduces people to the ideas of body position and cornering and, you know, getting you to think with those kind of things, you know, in, in a parking lot setting. And the point I'm getting to is I was going to have him on the show and he and I were actually going to talk about getting me on the track for my first track day because he does track days as well and then unfortunately a couple days beforehand he had a bit of an incident on the track he, he was away for a weekend doing a track day uh, and he unfortunately wrecked his bike and he's busted up his ankle a little bit so we kind of put that on hold at least the, doing the actual track day probably sometime in the next month or so when, when he's feeling up to it you know actually have him on and we'll start going over that kind of stuff but uh I, I think probably for sure you've got a lot more in-depth experience you know on the track doing track days just from you know what I saw in your biography and things on your website, and then plus everything you're doing with the social media is really cool. So we'll we'll get into that a little bit. But uh, for anyone who's interested, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. So Tom Walker uh, goes by the Moto Coach. He has a podcast. He's only got five episodes out there, and and they're fairly short. But he's got some kind of good content. So check it out. He's on Facebook and also uh, you know on the various podcast platforms. So like I said, I'll put the I'll put those links in the the show notes. Um, so I guess, Dan, so one of the things just that I came across, you know, and looking at the stuff on your website, which, by the way, everybody check it out. I mean, he's got a lot of awesome, just free content on there. You know, like I said, the articles and, and then the videos and stuff on YouTube and whatever. So, you know, definitely check it out. But so I know in, in your kind of bio where you talk about how you got started, you know, in, in all of this, you, you had a couple accidents on the track. So maybe you want to just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it was, um, really really early on actually it was my very first day out on the track so i got my license in uh, april 2009 and one of the main reasons why i got the license was to go on the track because i had a friend that raced at the time i, I loved my racing on tv and it was always just something i wanted to do so yeah i went to the track um i tend to pick things up quite quickly and i'm wishing to toot my own horn but quite good at things when i do pick them up so i was thinking i was going to go there everyone show everyone how good i was but that's that's not what happened not what happened at all um, yeah. by the end of the day i was uh picking myself up off the track and just just through youthful exuberance and basically not knowing what i was doing uh yeah that and the um the crash deposit that i had to leave for the bike that i had rented for the day that was that was down the right. toilet so uh gotcha yeah so it it started off not so great um got a couple more days in that season then started again basically for the next season uh i actually ended up buying i used to have um, a, a suzuki bandit 650 bandit and uh i thought I'd, I'd get a bike for the road and the track something i could use so i didn't have to rent bikes and 
so I could basically do them at my leisure. So I took this, it was a pristine, it was a 2004 R6, so not new new, but this thing was absolutely mint, mint condition. So I took that to the track on a track evening, actually. I don't know if you have those over there, but some of the, um, throughout the summer, we do track evenings as well, where you can just get mm. a few sessions for, for basically less money. Right. So I took this, yeah, I took this pristine new bike, very first session, was picking it up out of the dirt. And it's actually a clip I've, I've put in a few of my videos on, uh, on YouTube. Uh, of me slamming the the gravel with my fists in despair that I just trashed this new bike. <laughs> gotcha. So it was yeah. From that point, it, once again, it was just a little mistake caught me out. I couldn't deal with the situation. I panicked and and ended up in the gravel. And it was from that point I thought, okay, I've got to take this seriously. You can't just if you want to go fast, you can't just jump on the bike and everything's always going to be okay and you're going to go as fast as you want to go. So yeah, I basically just started taking things more seriously from that point onwards and, and really figuring out what I needed to do. Yeah. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. That's, it is interesting. Cause, uh, I, obviously, you know, and, and you talk about it on your website, you, you've come a long way since that point, you know, you certainly learned a lot. I think it's cool that you're now taking all that experience, you know, to, to teach other people. And it's interesting too, cause I, I think the kind of experience you had is often the catalyst for, for people doing this kind of thing. So we, one of the guys I've, I've interviewed also on the podcast, Fast Eddie, that has this uh, program called Moto Jitsu. Basically, it's like parking lot drills and stuff to help people you know, hone their skills in between doing you know, other training and things of that sort. But his basic story was you know, he started riding, wasn't that long into his career. He was canyon carving. Uh, he, he, you know, he ran off a tight bend, you know, smashed his bike into a rock wall basically uh knocked himself unconscious and was you know when he came to and you know got himself home and was thinking about it, he's like uh, yeah i think i need to rethink this whole thing you know so uh it, it's not i guess that uncommon a thing and what what you're talking about i guess is in part one the reason you know we hear the statistics we hear about motorcyclists and two something that i think discourages some people from getting started because the truth is it can be a dangerous machine if you don't know what you're doing and if you don't take the time to educate yourself, right? And if you don't take it at the proper pace so that you're not pushing yourself more than you're ready for, you, you get into trouble, right? And you have, you have things like that. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So that, I think that's cool that you're leveraging that and trying to save other people from, you know, similar experiences. Um, so, so I guess, like, age-wise, you, you fit into the millennial generation, right? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And and the reason I bring it up is, is just it's kind of interesting because when I was thinking about what we would talk about tonight, I was kind of looking at it, right? So you know, as listeners know, I'm, I'm in my mid fifties. You know, I started riding a couple of years ago, and it's just interesting because one of the reasons I started doing the podcast is the talk that you know just this talk in various and our thing shrinking and what's happening and you know in, in the U.S. is Harley Davidson doing the right thing and are they going to go out of business you know, all this kind of stuff right and and there's a lot of attention and focus on the millennial generation and so it's like well our manufacturers meeting the needs of the millennial generation right and 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 all these kind of kind of things and then so I was thinking back about the people I've interviewed so far on the podcast and and actually quite a few people are in that generation so you know like I, I interviewed Haley Bell and Sarah Sarah Worthy Lake who are part of the Women Riders World Relay right I don't know if you're familiar with it but it's this group of women riders who are taking a baton around the world on motorcycles to bring awareness to women motorcyclists and try to get more attention from manufacturers and you know better better support in terms of the bikes that are available and gear and you know all that kind of stuff 
Um, I also interviewed a new writer who, not because of my podcast, but found my podcast because he was getting ready to start you know, riding motorcycles, and you know, he's also millennial. Justin Edson from Jed's Moto, same thing. You know, he and I talked. Dan Dan, the fireman, is fits you know in that generation. He was a EMT who uh, just kind of got tired of seeing people getting in motorcycle wrecks, and so he you know decided to retire from the fire department where he was working. And so now he does social media, YouTube, and stuff, basically promoting motorcycle safety and, and getting people to think more about what they're doing you know out on the road. So the the point I'm getting to, and then also you know Fast Eddie from Moto Jitsu, who I think he's a little bit older, a little bit outside, maybe the tail end of the millennial generation, but he kind of fits in there too. And you know, there's a lot of things he's doing to help, you know, promote rider safety and getting people to wear gear and, you know, get training and, and that kind of stuff. But so the point I'm getting at is I'm like looking back at it going, wow, you know, many of the people I've interviewed are in the in that generation and seem to be doing a really good job, like what you're doing, right, with uh, Life at Lean and, and your track academy and whatever. You know, it seems like the millennial generation kind of has things well under control. I, I was like looking at it going, I, I don't think we really need to worry because, you know, the people of your generation, you know, kind of found their voice and they kind of know what they're interested in, know what they want to do. And you, you guys, you know, you're just running gangbusters with it. So I, I, I think it's really cool to see. And like I said, I was like just looking at it going, well, you know, what are we worried about? Let's just let people get on with it. And, and, and in my case, just help support what they're doing, you know. I think the, the benefit we have is just the opportunities to, to have our voices heard. That's yeah. probably why you see more young people doing it, because they understand the technology and they can and take those opportunities and get their voices out there. Now, it does mean that you're going to get some people that, perhaps shouldn't be heard but at the same time it's just going to create a bigger base of, of knowledge we can tap into yeah and that 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 is a really good point about you know people of of that generation you know having been exposed to the technology from an earlier age i mean i'm maybe you know not you know I, Basically, I'm trained as an engineer or whatnot. My dad was an engineer, right? So there obviously, you know, are people from other generations, you know, that have come from technology backgrounds. And so, I, you know, I love this stuff and it, it's easy for me to pick up. But, you know, I know there are people, you know, it's kind of the classic, at least in the U.S., I don't know about in the U.K., you know, like the classic joke about, you know, the grandparent that can't figure out how to work their cell phone. So the four-year-old, you know, takes it and, <laughs> and shows them, you know, whatever, yeah, how to access yeah. YouTube and all that kind of stuff. So that's it, kind of interesting. But the, But that is a good point that, you know, you know, people of that generation having grown up with this stuff and just being naturally like, well, yeah, of course you communicate this way. Of course, of course you can, you know, have your voice heard by hundreds of thousands of people. You know, maybe it's taken a little bit more for granted than, you know, older generations, but. Yeah. yeah when, so. it, when it's used properly, it means you can, you can reach so many more people and have such a bigger impact. So yeah, I yeah. think it's great, obviously. No, absolutely. Yeah, no. And, and you're obviously utilizing it very well, but you know, to your point, you know, it does also give a easy platform for people who don't know what they're talking about or, yes. or whatever. But I, you know, I, I think I don't worry about that much. I don't, I don't know if you've come across much of it or people like trying to copy what you're doing or anything like that. But I think most people can kind of, you can kind of look at the content and, and just, you know, think a little bit and use your common sense and, and you kind of get, does this person know what they're talking about or that they're full of it kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to think most people can, can see where that line is and, and know what's right and what's not so right at times. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So how, how did you come up with the name Life at Lean? I think that it's, it's really a good name. Like the first time I saw it, I was like, wow, like I, I really, I get it. Like it really communicates. Okay. That's good to hear. Um, 
So actually, when I first started the site, it wasn't called that. It was actually called, wait for it, Bike Track Days Hub. Okay. <laughs> now, there, there might be some people that remember that, but it was uh, quite a few years ago now. Basically, when I started the site, it was with the intention of turning it into something bigger that could perhaps one day support me and be my job. But back then, everyone was very focused on... Um, keywords with google i don't know if that means anything to you sure yep so basically i was trying to put bike track days in my domain name so that when people search for that stuff they'd, they'd find me so then over the years i was doing more and more stuff and i was thinking okay this is getting to a nice sort of size but i hated the name it was just it just didn't it wasn't a brand or anything like that so yeah it was it was three i think three years ago now that i decided to change it and yeah basically just sat down with with a pen and paper or, or a notepad on my computer and just hashed out some names. I quite like um, names with alliteration in them. So like it's just short, sharp, snappy, similar sounds, life yeah. at lean. It's just, it's, yeah, it's just something I landed on and it made sense to me. And some people get confused sometimes, but I think I like, like what it, what it stands for. Yeah. Now confused because they know you as the prior name, basically like that's, they, they probably got started with you earlier on. Um, sometimes, but some people have said to me, it sounds like something fitness related, Oh, living a lean life or something like that. But okay. I think as a motorcyclist, it's quite easy to get. So yeah, no, sure. I think you're right. At least for me, like, you know, being a person who rides motorcycles and I think, you know, e even someone just getting started out, like they know about cornering and turning and leaning. So I, I think you're right that someone who knows about motorcycles, you know, they would, I, th I think they get life at lean. Um, I, I like, I, I, I just like the name because it just, to me, I like look at it, I go, yeah, like, you know, it's interesting too. Cause like I was thinking about how, you know, going straight is fairly simple right now. Granted there's issues. If you're racing and you're trying to shave time off and whatever, right. It's, it's all about corner exit, you know, and getting the, the best exit speed. And, you know, basically you want the best average speed around the track kind of thing. Right. But it's yeah. easy to go in a straight line. And that's part of the problem is bikes are so powerful nowadays. It's so easy to whack the throttle, go in a straight line. And then, you know, to learn to slow the bike properly, even in a straight line, okay, then then that gets to be another level of skill. But particularly cornering, it, it's really what what hangs people up. And and you know, at least right for track day riders, I guess, and for racers, it's probably what they're concerned the most about. So that that idea of life at lean, like you know, spending your life like handling those nuances, those tricky aspects. I don't know, it just kind of for me, just works as a package. So hopefully, hopefully, other people like it as much as I do. <laughs> <laughs> So that's, yeah, that's cool. Um, so I, I know you, you already got into this a little bit, but so kind of, if you could just kind of walk us through like the, the process of getting life at lean, you know, and, and the original, original, originally was called what it was the, uh, track day hub or something. Bike track days hub. Bike yeah. Track, okay. I don't blame you for not remembering it. <laughs> no, that's, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. Um, so, so life at lean and, and track Academy, like how, how did you get all that off the ground? I, I'm guessing it kind of evolved over a period of time. Yeah, exactly. A long time, actually. Um, as I say, when I started the original version of the site, it was always my intention to turn it into something that, that could support me and again, become my job. But to be honest, it's, it's taken me a lot longer than I thought it would to get here, but yeah, it's just a gradual progression of, of everything I was doing. So 
originally I approached it from a like a publisher model in the sense that I was just putting out guides. I was doing like gear reviews um, and stuff like that. And then I just found people started resonating as I was sharing like my experiences and what I was learning and stuff like that. And then I started to realize I had a way to to kind of break things down and, and help people understand them. And that, that kind of sent me down that path of continuing to do that. And then in all that time, I was improving my own writing and taking in absolutely everything I could and just becoming a real student of, of riding on the track. And then, yeah, that's when I, I kind of decided to go all in of, of becoming someone that helps others tread the same path that I took. Right. And um, I can't remember where I was going with that now. Oh well, yeah, yeah. Just yeah. just building up. Sorry, just building up a, a life at Lean. And then yes, yeah, so I started going down that path, and then from from all the free content, then I released um, an ebook uh, that became a course, and then I started. Then I turned that course into like a full uh, video course, and then that turned into a membership. And so it was just a, just an evolution really of all these things. And where we are now, I feel like I've really found uh, something I really love to stand behind, and I really love growing. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. And and so I'm guessing kind of at, as time went along, uh, I'm guessing you kind of took feedback and things from, you know, from the people you were helping and, and that probably helped shape things as well as whatever ideas you came up with, like innovations that you had. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. There, there's, you can, you can teach something, but I found one of the biggest roadblocks of people was actually um, implementing the stuff themselves and then having the support to be able to do that continuously. So the, I always say that the very best results you'll get is going to be working with a quality coach on the track. Mm -hmm. But that only happens in a really short space of time. So right. in that time, you'll learn a new skill and they'll, they'll show you how to do it. They'll monitor your progress and all that stuff. And you'll make a big leap in a short space of time. But after that, you, you either just carry on doing the same thing or, or, you, you work with someone else and work on a new skill and, you know, do it that way. But with the stuff that I was putting together, it was all about giving people the information as well as the platform and support they need to be able to continually put that into practice. Right. And so uh, that's actually a really good point. So I, I guess you've kind of become a stable stable point or a mentor basically for people that like you're you're always there and you know I, I i did join your track academy and you know i try to follow a little bit what's going on on the facebook page it's a little bit difficult you know having a full-time job and being a podcaster and trying to ride my motorcycle so course, yeah. <laughs> you know i haven't yet gotten you know all the value i know that's there to be gotten but the thing that strikes me is that you, you seem to have built a, a pretty good community. Like there's a lot of people there participating and I know you encourage people to help one another out. So I, I guess that helps too. So people not only have you as the person who's always there able to answer a question, provide guidance, but I'm sure people are kind of, you know, befriending other people in the group, you know, like in the Facebook group and, and whatever. And so they've, they've got like a little bit of a support network that's, that's more than just your buddies at the track or, you know, people that you bump into. Yeah. And the good, the good thing, the thing that I love about my group is that they've come in because they, they're serious about the sport. They want to learn it and they want to do it properly. So where I find with the vast majority of of Facebook groups around motorcycling and stuff like that. There's a lot of bravado and it's very difficult to get good feedback and to ha just have a serious conversation sometimes. But yeah, yeah it, it's exactly that because everyone's there and they're all trying to do the same thing. It's amazing to me. And it's actually blown my expectations of 
how much the community has been a factor um, in how it's helping people. And yeah, again, you might not think you've got something to offer if you're quite new to it, but you've experienced something that a brand new person won't have done yet. And if something comes up for them, a problem for them that you've had, you can then put your input into that. And you just see that going backwards and forwards between all the people in the group. And again, yeah, it's just really um, blown me away how much that's been a factor. Yeah, that's wild, and I I like hearing that because that that's, uh, you know, and and other people I've talked to, it, it's been a similar thing, and and I guess you know maybe it's just a sign of you know being on the right track, right, or or having hit the right you know chord or note with people is that they start something and it's like hey they just want to get this thing going, and and then it kind of takes a life of its own in a way, like it 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 evolves you know, broader or faster than they even imagined. And then it kind of becomes a thing of, you know, how do you keep up with this thing that you got off the ground? Like that becomes the challenge. It's not like, right. Cause initially it's like, how do you get people interested? And you know, how do you, how do you get the thing rolling? And then I guess later the problem becomes, how do you do everything that needs to be done? Because it kind of takes off, you know? Yeah. I, I wouldn't say I've necessarily been overwhelmed. I, I felt like I had a pretty good pass out of, of what people needed, but yeah, whenever I could or whenever something surfaced that someone said, oh, maybe you should do this, this would help us out more Then, yeah, sometimes it, it diverges of where I thought perhaps it would go. And right. yeah, it, it's been good. Yeah, cool. And so it, it sounds like, so are you basically able to, to make a living now from what you're doing with these yeah, things? Yeah, I actually left my job in um, 2015. Mm-hmm. I'd probably say realistically, it's only in the last two years that it's reached a point where it can properly support me, but yeah, this is, this is what I do now. Cool. That's awesome. That's awesome. So you've got the entrepreneurial thing going as well. Yeah. As I say, that was always, always my intention when I started this from the beginning. Um, I tried some other things, but it was, things were kind of pivoting to, well, the information age was very much in effect and there was a lot of opportunities for people that were good at something and could teach to turn that into a business basically. So yeah. That was always in the back of my mind when I started this all off years ago, and it's just reached a point now where it's, it's kind of fully being realized, I would say. Yeah, awesome, cool. The, the other thing that you mentioned that, that kind of struck me is, you know, the thing about sometimes having difficulty, right? There's all these different things on the internet, Facebook groups and whatever, you know, groups of motorcyclists and stuff, and, you know, your, your point about, you know, some of them can just be about, you know, whatever, showing off, bragging, you know, who's got the best wheelie video on the highway and that kind of stuff. Um, but but I guess what what's good kind of about the model that you have, right, where you've got a lot of free content, right? So, you know, you've got your, your email subscription is free, basically, right? Just people just sign up and they can get your email. Yep, exactly. You know, yeah. Uh, right. And so you've got the videos and um you know, your, your articles and the ebook and all that kind of stuff. So th- there's lots of free resources and I guess there's kind of a community around that. So I guess my point is, you know, the people who aren't like super, super serious, fine. You know, there's stuff there for them. And, you know, if, if they're not going to take it super serious, okay, fine. You know, it's like, but then I guess you kind of have the people who may maybe graduate up, like you said, who are more like they're serious, like they really want to get good at doing track days. And so that's when they sign on with you, you know, and then I guess that's a, a much smaller portion, right, of all the people who are who are using your content. But now you've got people who are really like dedicated and serious about doing this thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I went into it knowing that's how it all worked. If if that most of the people out there are just going to want to pick up some tips where they can, but 
the ones that do become more serious about it and they want to learn more and they want a more structured way of, of doing things and perhaps the support to do that as well, then they're going to follow up with, with what I have to offer. So yeah, it's um, the free stuff has always been about providing value up front, basically to show what I can offer mm-hmm. and then the people that want to go further, they will. Right. And so in the, uh, the track Academy or like the, uh, you know, the, the subscription service, right. That you have on the Facebook page and whatever, that's 135 people or so. Um, it's a little bit more than that. So not, ev- so yeah, not everyone joins the Facebook group. Right. Um, that signs up for the program, but yeah, yeah we're looking at about 160 at the moment. Okay. Wow. So that, that's a really good group of people. Yep. Yep. And we've yeah. actually got an opening coming up very soon. So I'm hoping to, uh, get another intake coming in. Oh, cool. And uh, so I guess you find you're able to keep up with, with everybody's needs? Yeah, yeah. It's surprising, really. You At first, when you start it, you think you, you're... So I tell people they can contact me anytime they want about anything they want, either personally, through email, through the Facebook group, and then every month, I don't know if you've seen, but we do the rider analysis sessions where mm-hmm. they can post videos and get their riding looked at. And at right. first, you think 100-odd people, that could that's going to be way too much, but... Sadly, people don't utilize those features as much as they probably should because it's getting that feedback and that dialogue that's really going to help unlock some of the stuff they're learning at the time. But, but yeah, so far it's, it's easily manageable and um, very rewarding. Yeah. Do, uh, is part of your plan, you know, you're kind of envisioning growing it to a point where you're going to need other people to help you with that, you know? In, in... Quite possibly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'd always had when I when I started the the membership model, I'd always had the idea that I'd like to hit 500 members. Basically, taking the same approach I've got now, like with the YouTube videos and the articles, and growing that way. And I, I thought, see if we can get to 500, and basically decide what we want to do from there. If I need to bring in more people, if we want to expand into other ways of teaching, then we can look to do that. But yeah, to this point, it's literally just been just been me. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. And so, so prior to like really getting this, all this off the ground, did, did you, you have prior experience like with social media and this kind of stuff or like what was your background prior? No, not at all. I was, I just had an IT support job for, for eight years for a big um, data center. And okay. Yeah. It's just, it's just all stuff I've learned along the way, really. Yeah. Okay. But so you had the IT skills, the technology skills, and then it was a matter um, of pick, picking up the, Social media yeah, I, I guess so. Yeah, in that sense, I was I'm quite technology minded, and I, I get this stuff quite easily. So, yeah, I knew, I knew based stuff like building PCs and like that kind of stuff. So it didn't come difficult to me. But yeah, like the social media side and like how to do videos and stuff, it's just stuff I've learned over time. Yeah, yeah, cool. Do um do you get a chance to ride on the street much, or are you kind of like one of these entrepreneurs who's so busy, <laughs> so busy helping other people um, ride? <laughs> No, do you know what? I, so after I crashed the R6, mm-hmm. second crash, I turned that bike into a track bike, and then I didn't ride on the road for eight years. Oh well, um, it's probably very very different to like the canyon carvers of California yeah. and stuff like that. But where I am in particular, there's I don't get a ton of enjoyment from riding the roads that we have. Right. There are some amazing roads to go and ride, but they're not very local to me. So yeah. it then starts to become a chore to do that and. I don't have any riding friends on the road, so it's always just me going out. And yeah, I just when I got into the track stuff, it was just 
this experience that totally blew me away that the road never really felt the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just didn't ride on the road for a long time. I did pick it up again last year, very briefly, really. I just I tried to give it another go, but similar feelings started to crop up. So I just in my current situation, there's just not a lot of road riding taking place. Gotcha. So do do you have a street bike now, or you you don't bother? No, I literally just sold it a couple oh, of months wow. ago. It was a a street triple, yeah. Like yeah. Road and track, but okay. I'm back to the track bike now. Yeah, cool. And uh, so, what what is your track bike now? Uh, it's a 2014 uh, Kawasaki ZX10R. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's a beast. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I I could imagine. I'm a I'm a big Kawasaki fan. You know, I've got a Vulcan S, you know, Sport Cruiser, and then the Z900 RS, you know, in, in the garage. Okay. And uh, I actually recently the the Kawasaki demo truck came to the area, so I rode the uh, the ZX6R, which which obviously is nothing like the 10, but I, that bike was awesome. I, it was just, you know, it's only the second sport bike I've ridden. You know, I had test, tested out an R3 because the Yamaha truck was in town. But uh, I was I was pleasantly surprised. Like I was actually pretty comfortable on the bike, and uh, that thing. I don't know. It just it just is interesting. I mean, you know, the Z nine hundred RS is almost a liter bike. You know, it's one hundred ten horsepower. It's not huge, but I mean, that thing moves. Like it goes. But there was just something different. You could just feel how the ZX six R. It just was like a race bike. Like it just yeah. it just wanted to go. You know, I don't think I got out of second second gear most of the time. You know. Yeah. And, yeah. And it redlines at like sixteen thousand RPM. So I was like, wow, that, that I think if I bought a sport bike, that's as much as I would want on the street, because I just have a feeling I'd really get myself into trouble. And I'm sure like for me, starting out, you know, a bike like that would be more than enough, you know, to start on the track with. And I probably would I, I probably would be learning that bike for quite some time. So it was it was interesting. I just I just don't think personally Probably because I get my kicks on the track, but I just don't know why anyone would buy a sport bike for the road. Personally, yeah, I, I just you just can't you can't use it for what they're they're designed to do. I'd much rather have something that's more of an all rounder. And actually, the the street triple was a fantastic road bike. It was so much fun to ride. Um, it still had a fair bit of poke, but it was more than enough for the road and just more comfortable to ride. As I say, yeah, yeah, yeah I that no that 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 totally makes sense. I mean. You know, for sure, like that bike, like I said, it was a lot of fun to ride. I couldn't see riding long distance. I mean, I've I've taken the Z900 RS on weekend trips, and it, it it's workable. You know, I've got a top case on it, and I can put side cases so I can carry stuff. But, you know, it doesn't have a windshield or anything. So, it, it, you know, by the end of the weekend, I mean, I love it because I love riding, but, you know, I feel a little beat up from the wind and you know, all that yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I get your point. It's kind of like have a nice touring bike for the street and then, you know, get your you know, get your sport bike out on the track definitely makes sense what um what are some of the other track bikes you've had like i, I know you mentioned so originally you started with the suzuki bandit right it was kind of the very first one yeah that was just my first bike um yeah. just to get me started on the road i did take that on the track once um but it was so long ago to be honest i don't even remember how how it was um then i moved to the r6 right yeah had that for five seasons i can't remember now and I moved to a 2010 Honda Fireblade CBR 1000 RR. Okay. Uh, then I got the Street Triple last year, and then we're back on the ZX10. This right. Year. Okay. Gotcha. So did the Street Triple just not cut it for you on the track? You know, is that the reason you went back to leader bike? Or? Um, yeah, it was a combination of things, really. Knowing it was this thing was, again, 
such good condition. I was quite wary of crashing it, um, mm. even though it was smaller. So on the road, it had too much power. On the track, it felt <laughs> underpowered. It's okay. really strange. In a weird um, place. And then just thinking of the stuff I wanted to do for the track academy and I wanted to do a bit more coaching on the track itself and it just wouldn't have been viable to do that on that bike. Well, not as viable at least. You get someone turning up on a brand new R1, you're going to struggle with a 75 Triumph. But right, yeah, right. It just made more sense to have a dedicated track bike again and, and use something for that environment that was designed for that environment. Sure, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, you, the, the Kawasaki you got fairly recently, right? Very recently, yeah. Uh, okay. Three, three weeks ago. Gotcha. Okay, yeah, because I remember you posting a photo. I was like, oh, awesome, Kawasaki. Okay, <laughs> cool. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I like all bikes. I'm interested in all bikes, but just at this phase, I just happen to be a, happen to be a Kawasaki fan. And in green too, they're they're yeah, that's nice. that's that's the way to go. Yep, that's like yeah, yeah the, the one the well, actually, the, the ZX6R I rode was the one in black, but they did have also the, on the demo truck the one the, with the Kawasaki, the Kawasaki racing green with the KRT, you know, trim and all that kind of stuff. So it's definitely a nice looking bike. Um, and uh, and, and just kind of going through your website, you know, you talk about yourself a little bit. I, I saw that you mentioned being into motorcycles and lattes. So I, I was just curious, are you a Starbucks fan at all? Is, is, like, is like Starbucks a thing in the UK to be, to at all? Be, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 I'll, I'll take them wherever I can get them. Yeah, okay. Local calf or, yeah, anywhere. Yeah, I, I happen to be a bit of a star, Starbucks addict, so it's just kind of funny. And I, I don't know about in the UK, but in the US, like that's kind of the running joke is that you always find the BMWs, you know, motorcycles outside the Starbucks. Because... <laughs> You know, the, the Harleys are outside the bar for bar hopping and the BMWs are outside the Starbucks. So. Sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so it sounds like uh, you are, you're also a bit of a racing fan, motorcycle racing. Yeah, I absolutely love it. Um, got into it. It's weird, really. Like, I wasn't, my dad wasn't sporty at all and I wasn't into any sports as a kid or anything like that. And it was around 05, 06. Just started to become more aware of it. And actually, we used to go to the track um to watch racing locally when i was a kid but it was just because my dad's boss had a box there so we just used to go for a day out basically right but i'm guessing something stuck because yeah when i really got into it in 05 06 that sort of time it's just every, every single year i just watch watch it all basically mm -hmm. any uh particular series do you enjoy um yeah motor gp world superbike british superbike i watch every single race of those often the support races too if i have time yeah yeah but, uh, yeah i just love it all Stud studying what they're doing and seeing the racing i think we're in a really good with MotoGP in particular i think we're in a good um a good spell at least the last few years yeah love it yeah no absolutely and, and it's interesting what you mentioned you know about watching and learning from the riders and uh, obviously you know, you get a lot more out of it than I do. But but it is interesting because since I've been educating myself more, you know, like I've been reading the Keith Code books, you know, Twist of the Wrist, watching some videos and things, the, the more I learn about, you know, the physics of the bike and, and the dynamics of motorcycles and learning about technique and, you know, how that relates, the more the more I 
observe and I'm appreciative of what ride, what I see riders doing on the track. You know, whereas before it's just like, okay, they're, they're riding around and it's, it's fun to watch. It's entertaining. And, you know, you like to see, you know, stiff racing competition, whatever, but it's interesting now that I'm like a little more thoughtful about it. You know what I mean? It's like, I look and I go, okay, what are they doing? Why is he turning there? You know, that kind of thing. So it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's great. You don't get it very often, but sometimes you get these little gems um, where, where a rider will say something in an interview and you'll think, oh, that's interesting. Because one of the biggest lessons I get from watching races is how nuanced it can be. So you think everyone's doing the same thing, everyone's, everyone's tackling it the same way, but they're not at all. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's down to rider preference, how they like to ride, whether it's the bike, how it needs to be ridden. It's, it's a big thing that I talk about in the stuff that I do that we've got to try not to focus too much on one very particular way of doing stuff because there can be room for a lot of nuance in the various things that we do on the track. And that's that for me, seeing the way the different riders tackle it in their, their own way and still go fast, sometimes within hundredths of a second, is just fascinating to me. Yeah. No, absolutely. And that, that's something I've gone to just, you know, again, out of reading a twist of the wrist, cause it just happens to be what I'm reading now, but, um, you know, really taking away that idea of, you know, understanding the basics and the fundamentals so that you can apply it in any situation without having like a fixed mindset or like fixed rules. Like, you know, when this happens, I do this, when, when I'm there, I do this because of the fact that things, especially racing, change so quickly, right? You know, it's like, you know, you can go out and practice on a track and find a great line around a curve, but when you're racing and you've got competitors around you, then the whole thing, it's different, right? And so if you can't adapt to that, then it's, you know, it doesn't do you any good. Yeah, kind of thing. there's yeah. definitely some, I won't necessarily say hard and fast, but there are some some general rules we're looking to, to keep in place, but... Yeah, as you say, situations can change all the time. It could be a rider, it could be the type of corner, it could be the conditions on that corner, it could be condition of your tires if you're running for a long time. So yeah, having yeah. That, um, adjustability is good. Yeah, and and even like the bike you're on, right? Because you know it's kind of a common thing, right? Like if if you're if you're riding a three four hundred cc bike, right, it's going to be a heck of a lot different. Your the basics, you know, the principles of how it works is the same, but your technique is going to be a lot different than if you're like on a leader bike because of what you can and can't get away with on a leader bike and also the ways you get more trouble, right, on a leader bike. Yeah, te- yeah. technique wouldn't necessarily be different, just how you apply that technique. Right. Um, in a sense of like how you approach the corners and the lines you're taking, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Are you a Isle of Man fan also? Yep. Yeah, yep. I haven't haven't been just yet, but okay. I watch it every year on TV. Yeah, no, me too. That's definitely on on my bucket list of things to do. Is I'd love yeah. to see it. I'd love to see it live. Like I, 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 right yeah, yep, definitely. I, I know it'll be a much different experience because yeah, that's one of the things with racing, right? Is you watch on TV and it's you know you're kind of always aware of what's going on and it's you just have a better sense of seeing everything. And then at the track, depending on the type of track, but. It's, Certainly, if it's a road course, you know, you're just seeing part of the activity. And the Isle of Man is even, you know, it's even exaggerated, right? Because what are they doing? Like 30 minutes, was it 25, 30 minute lap times or something like that? So you, know, you see them go by and then you wait, you have a beer, whatever, and then they go by again. So different kind of thing. But but like, just like being at, you know, like I, I was in Austin, Texas, you know, Circuit of the Americas just a couple months ago for the, the MotoGP race. And they actually were there with, with Moto America too, which was 
was really cool to see both series racing. There's just nothing like it to actually experience that, you know, to, to hear the bikes, that the sound is just phenomenal, you know, in person and, and just to see them whizzing by it. It's, a, it's just, it's a, it's a different way to experience it. I even get that buzz from just, I was at um, Brands Hatch just a couple of weeks ago watching club racing. Mm-hmm. Just, just seeing that particularly the bigger bikes, seeing them tear around, there's just something so visceral about it. And yeah, I just love it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so in terms of like injury, so I, I think one of your, your first offs on the track, you, you mentioned breaking your wrist, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, to be honest, I've been very lucky with the injuries I've had. Um, incidentally, the worst injury was at the slowest speed when I fell off. Okay. Um, and it wasn't terrible. I just broke my scaphoid in my wrist. Mm-hmm. So not too painful, but it just, it took forever to heal. Um, the second time I bruised the other scaphoid, um, but aside from that, I haven't really had any big, big injuries, which is astonishing, really, because my third crash, which wasn't actually my fault, I got taken out by someone else. I jumped off at over 100 mile an hour and had no scratch or bruise on me, which is quite m- miraculous, really. Wow. Wow. Okay. But, well, that's. Yeah, uh... I mean, it's, it's just those those three crashes. I mean, I haven't. Made it my, after the second one, I made it my mission not to do it again. So, uh, yeah, aside from getting taken out, it's, it's been a pretty smooth road. Right. And, and obviously, you know, in a situation like that, that's a risk you run. You know, I mean, obviously in racing, it's even worse. But I guess that's just one of those things you have to whatever think with and just to do the best you can to avoid. It. But, but that's, yeah. that's the thing, right, with motorcycles. And, you know, the reason I promote people wearing gear, right, because I think this may not, this is probably not the case in the UK, right? But in the United States, there are some states where people don't have to wear helmets and things of that sort. And so there are people who don't, you know, they ride, you know, whatever, all kinds of bikes, you know, leader bikes and whatever without gear. Um, and, you know, to me, I get it. And that's a whole other subject, whatever you know, I've talked about in other episodes. But it's, it's even, even if you feel you're a very accomplished rider and, and you know, you know what you're doing and whatever, there's still those things that are not within your control that can happen. And it, it just seems because it can happen, you know, why not protect yourself as best you can? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a risk and, we, but we still have to basically do the best job we can. We can't start worrying about, uh, on the track this is, you can't start worrying about what other people are doing. You've just got to be predictable yourself and be, be smooth and safe and, Sometimes these freak things happen, but for the vast majority of the time, everyone gets on okay. Yeah, 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 absolutely. No, and, and I agree with you, right? It's like, you know, be aware of the risks and do what you can to control it, but then go out and enjoy yourself because otherwise, what's the point? Yeah, and the best way to control it is to do a good job yourself because that's just yeah. going to make the faster guys. It's going to make it easier for them to pass you. Sure, sure. That's a good point. That's a really good point. Um, so one of the things you mentioned also is that, you know, after one of your accidents, I guess in kind of the late, late 2009 into 2010, you were kind of healing up and whatever, what, what did you do to kind of train yourself and, and prepare yourself for the, the next season of riding? Basically consume as much as I could to make sure the mistakes didn't happen again. It was, it was really that simple. Um, yeah. I knew I didn't know what I was doing. I could obviously ride a bike. I passed my test and, you can ride around, but it's a very different environment when you get onto the track. When you get onto the track and start to push, it's a very different environment. So, yeah, it was just a case of, of learning everything I could, trying to understand why what happened happened, which fortunately for me I was able to do. Um, sometimes 
people get stuck in the mystery of why they crashed but i was able to decipher that and yeah just just carried on learning what i should be doing and when i eventually did get back it was just putting that stuff in practice and just progressing from there yeah so was that like when when as you were educating yourself was it mostly like reading like was it stuff you're finding on the internet um were you taking you know courses or doing you know training academies or uh, at that time, it was predominantly um, Keith's work, Keith Code's work. Obviously, you've mm-hmm. already mentioned his Twisted yeah. the Wrist stuff. Right. Um, I think I, I must have seen the ad in a magazine or something because I picked up the DVD at a motorcycle show here and started consuming that, and that kind of led me down the path of his stuff. I think I picked up the book shortly after, and yeah, that was that was kind of the main source of information for me at the time because there wasn't none else out there. Right. I met that ten years ago. Certainly not on like YouTube and that sort of stuff. Sure. No, definitely. Yeah, it, it actually was interesting interviewing him because, you know, one of the things he pointed out is when, when he really first got started in like early early mid seventies, like seventy five, seventy six, when he started, you know, his his training riders and California Superbike School, really no one was doing it. Like there was there, there was no such thing as like motorcycle coaching. I, you know, I, I guess people that raced primarily went out and they raced, and then whatever you know what happened happened. It wasn't like other sports where because I think pretty early on i mean you know you can look at baseball football whatever like there's always been this concept of coaches and coaching and improving you know athletes and whatever so it's just interesting like he was one of the kind of the first to break into that yeah it's strange really and i do think this owes him a lot for really breaking those barriers because even now there's bravado you see around people saying you don't you just need to get on the track and ride that's what they say and i just think it's just such a wrong way of approaching it especially something where there's potentially so much risk there like why would you take that approach so to see it now i can't imagine what it would have been like you know 40 years ago when he when he started yeah yeah and i know you mentioned doing some training with california superbike school was that in the uk yeah yeah i just did level one in um 2010 okay um but i was quite fortunate really i I became friends with a couple of the coaches there Mm -hmm. um as in just through general track riding track days that kind of thing but those guys were kind of around and they guided me a little bit in my earlier days and yeah so again that was i guess keith's work as a as a body of work was my main inspiration early on right gotcha did uh did you get to meet keith was he there doing the training or was just his guys no, that no it's um a guy called andy ibbert he was the i think he was essentially his number two at the time Mm-hmm. He was running UK schools, and uh, he was the one that was uh, behind the scenes in the UK. Right. Okay. Gotcha. And so then, like, so at some point, I guess you know, you made the transition from okay, so I, I guess feeling accomplished yourself as a track rider, and then you know, wanting to start helping other people. H- how did that happen? Was that just kind of a decision? You're like, hey, I want to start teaching others. Was it something like people were coming to you for help because they saw that you knew what you were doing? Like, how did that kind of get rolling? It was a bit of both, really. I mean, like I said before, I'd started it with the intention of, of turning it into an income source. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just saw that people were resonating of the way I was putting stuff forward and, and breaking it down and stuff. So I would just get increasingly more questions coming through and as the questions come through i'd make content that's tailored to that and and i'll help people out where i could through email and stuff like that and just basically come to realize that i think i can do this i think i can get people results and help them ride 
faster and safer, which is which is the main aim. So it was it was um it wasn't something I just decided like I'm going to be a motorcycle teacher and you know really take on that world. It's just something I've grown into, and the more I've done it, the more feedback you get, the more um, satisfaction and stuff like that you get from seeing the results that you're you're helping people with. Yeah, yeah, just 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 basically carried on and guess honed my craft from all of that that sure. help i was dishing out yeah yeah gotcha which um the, the, this may not be a question that applies but do, do you prefer one over the other like if you look at like yourself going out riding on the track or you know helping teaching others which which, which one do you enjoy more i would say teaching definitely there's there's a lot more fulfillment in that side of it um yeah. Don't get me wrong, I love the riding, I love everything about the sport, but I don't necessarily know if I'd still be doing it if I wasn't teaching. Okay. Because I, I just don't know if I would have thought, okay, I've done that, let's move on to something else. Right. Yeah. Just being in the position of, of teaching others, it makes you better as a rider as well, and I just get so much more from it from doing that. And Sure. Yeah, I mean, like, especially since I started the YouTube stuff, obviously I'm... I'm there's times when I'm working people more personally, and but since the YouTube stuff started, it was really the, the start of last year that I got really serious about it and started putting content out weekly. And pretty much every day now, I'm getting emails from all over the world from people that are telling me what my, my, what my stuff has done and how they've progressed and how they're running safer and how they can handle the machine better and how they feel more confident. And yeah, it's just what I live for, really. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. That must be that must be really rewarding. When um when when you go out and you do a track day, are you able you know, can you just be like, okay, good. So I'm out for for myself doing a track day or do you find just cuz like people know you and stuff that you know you end up helping other people and you know, can you kind of just get some time to yourself or is it kind of like Yeah, it's not really know? an issue. I mean, people are generally respectful. Um I see some people sometimes people come over to me and they talk to stuff but again this this is stuff I love so if I ask someone how how's your day going and they say oh, I'm struggling here then I have no problems with with just you know giving a bit of feedback where I can to hopefully help them improve and have a better day because of that but yeah generally I, I'm I can get on and do my own thing and yeah yeah it's okay. Okay. Well, that that's good because it is nice sometimes to just be able to you know do something for yourself and and just enjoy that and you know as 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 much obviously it's nice to work with other people and be with other yeah. people. Sometimes it's like let me just put the helmet on, put the visor down, and just go out. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to lie. There's times when I avoid big groups. Sure. I think is someone going to recognize me in there? Yeah. Yeah. I got gotcha. you. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so with, with all the resources that you have right between your, your ebook and the articles and the YouTube videos and all those things, which, you know, obviously is geared towards helping people on the track, right. And track riding, would, would you say that the materials that you have are suitable to help street, street riders as well? There's most definitely some crossover because at the end of the day, you're riding a bike. There's, there's time. So that's something I get a lot. I get a lot of road riders saying how it's helping them on the road so i would say it's more for them and for people like you that are just strictly road at the moment it's it's for them to answer to say that this stuff works because i don't necessarily want to say use this for the road because it's yeah so you're starting to get into some dangerous territory about 
what you're saying it's okay to do with a bike. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you're smart and you approach it from the, the standpoint that you know the road is different, you know the extra risks, there is a ton to learn from learning how to properly control a motorcycle. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know personally myself, and you know, I definitely encourage listeners to, to go check out, you know, all the resources that you have. I mean, I've I've benefited like I said, you know, I just I found your stuff on YouTube and that's why I was watching. It's like, wow, that this is really interesting, you know, things that you would explain about braking or cornering or whatever, you know, would give me things to think about when I was out riding on the road. So yeah, there's definitely definitely I think value there. That's good. Um if um if people are interested, right, they really want to get into doing track days and stuff, and they want to join the Track Academy, um, it, it sounds like, is that kind of um, like a limited number of seats kind of thing, or is it like... It's not a li- limited number of seats, but it's a limited time that we open. So oh, okay. we open twice a year normally. We open at the start of the season and then in the middle of the season. And that's so we can get a group of riders in that all want to work and progress together, and then I can focus on those people once they come in. So, yeah, when we open uh, in the next couple of weeks, then it will be, I'm not sure when this is going to go out, but it'll be soon. Um, Yeah, it will be open for a short Okay. Yeah, I mean, this this episode will go out in a a day or two, so it'll definitely be out, yeah, before before the registration closes for the next period. So so that's cool. And then uh, for for people who are interested, what what is the cost to join the Track Academy? Um, so it's it's a membership, so you can opt for the monthly option, which is £19 or $26, um, or you can pay for the annual option, which basically gets you 10 months for the price of 12 uh, and then you're paid up for the year, which is £197 or $67. Okay, I'm sorry, how, how many dollars? Uh, $267. Gotcha, okay. Cool. All right. Good. So yeah, and I'll uh, in the in the show notes for the for the episode, I'll I'll put links to your website and everything, so you know people can find it easily. Um, If they do go to my website, you'll see um, at the top there's a a Track Academy button. If you click that and join the waitlist, then you'll get a notification as soon as the doors open. Oh, good. Cool. Okay. And then, uh, how long does the registration period last? Um, Just under two weeks. Okay. All right, so good. So people have, you know, so whatever. They get a notification, they have time. It's not like they have to rush and worry about it. Okay, cool. If you're on, if you're on one of the lists, um, then you're going you're gonna to hear about it. Yeah, awesome. But that's kind of cool. So then you kind of have a group of people coming in together. And so I guess, you know, whatever, it's almost like, you know, <clears throat> university or something, right? You have a bunch of students come in together, they get to know each other, and then they kind of progress as a what's, group. What's really cool as well is, just going back to what I was saying about how the community has kind of blown me away, is seeing the people that joined in the last enrollment or or the one before that how they help the new guys come in and how they welcome them and yeah again it's just i love the community we're building there yeah yeah like i said i i haven't really had a chance to you know get everything i know i could get out of it but i i love just following it like every day you know check facebook it's like oh oh check it out oh there's a someone posted in uh track, yeah, yeah. track academy what's going on oh you know and, and whatever and the things that people are sharing it's like hey you know i got my knee down on this or check out you know the where i got on my tire or it's just like and you could you could just tell how excited people are about it so yeah. that's a lot that's a lot of fun just like i said and, and that's that's actually one of the reasons i i signed up the track academy it's like i you know i knew it's going to be a little while before I get myself on the track, but I was like, why not, you know, just start 
you're participating, asking questions, and, and even just observing, like, what are people going through? What's, the, you know, kind of the, the common barriers that people have? So when I do get to do my first track day, you know, I'm educated and I have some knowledge and I can ask intelligent questions and, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's good. Yeah, I think it's been great for that. Um, in, in your experience, and, and I know I guess mostly it's, you know, track riding and, and working with track riders, but do you see, um, or I guess my question is, what do you see any patterns like things that commonly, you know, hinder riders or kind of hang people up when when they're starting out on the track? Um, yeah, definitely. You see that you often see the same things coming up quite regularly. Um, most people hit the same stumbling blocks because most people have the self-preservation that they don't want to crash, they don't want to trash their bike. They've got a job that if they can't go to, they're going to lose money there. So everyone's quite cautious and they tend to get tripped up by the same things. But in terms of technique, the big, big one is always vision. People don't put enough weight on what they're looking at and when they're looking at it. Um, mm -hmm. Which, as you'll know, having gone through key stuff is, is such an important part of, of going fast and staying safe as well. Because... The vision enables you to go fast, but it also keeps you safe in the sense that it prevents you from or less likely fall into those panic situations. Right. Because you're in control of what you can see. And because when you're, when you're going 120, 130 miles an hour, everything's coming at you really quickly. Mm -hmm. and if you're not yeah. looking at the right things and, and your eyes aren't working correctly, then you can start falling into some pretty nasty traps. And that's actually what happened in my second crash. Basically... Okay. I wasn't slowing down as quick as I would like. And as it happened, I still had the throttle slightly open um, as I started braking. But that almost didn't matter because at the time, I just got the overwhelming sensation that I was going into the corner quickly. And I was like target fixating on the gravel. And that's exactly where I went. So, right. yeah, in terms of technique, that's, that's the thing that people get stuck on in, in the sense that they don't, they don't put enough importance on it because it is a really important thing. Um, the other thing I would say is actually maybe not so much in the group that I have because people are there because they want to learn and, and learn how to do things properly, but just being lazy with improvement. Like if if you want to get better, you have to you have to learn and you have to put in conscious practice. You can't just go to the track and ride around and inspect to, to get better. Now you might go quicker because let's say you've learned to or you've been able to lean the bike a bit more or you can open the throttle a bit sooner but that doesn't mean to say that you're riding safely so yeah just just not being lazy or sorry being lazy is is a stumbling block because a lot of riders just don't want to put in the work to actually improve because this is a skill like any other and again it has a lot of risks versus like playing tennis you wouldn't just like pick up a racket and expect to win a tournament so why are you going to jump on a bike and expect to go really fast and safe so Mm -hmm. yeah that, that's a big memory <clears throat> yeah that that's that's a really good point that you bring up and and i you know when i read i read through your i didn't read the whole thing yet but like last night i was skimming through your your ebook um which you want to give me the title again i know how uh, to central riding skills okay cool yeah so definitely you know suggest people check that out um it's, it's available for free you just have to give your email address and then you're going to get all kinds of cool email information so <laughs> it's it's a win-win kind of thing but um some of the points that i picked up from in there you know was your point about 
the importance of not just reading something once. It's like, read it, okay, good, but then go back and, and reread it, you know, and, and that's something, you know, I plan to do like with your ebook and, you know, things that I read on your website, I, I plan to do it with a twist of the wrist because of the point that you make that, you know, there's obviously things that you can miss, but also things that you, you don't really grasp or understand the importance because you haven't yet experienced the thing that it's talking about. You know, like, like what you're talking about with vision and things like that. And then, you know, also you pointed out the importance of, you know, doing a session and going out on the track with, with a particular goal in mind and, you know, working on one thing at a time, not overwhelming yourself, you know, and confusing yourself because you're trying to do everything at once. But like, you know, pick, pick something that's like, okay, I'm going to, you know, you mentioned, even if it's like improving one turn on the track, it, it's like focus on that thing so that you actually you know, can improve at it and, and, and judge if you're improving, right? So, you know, this is what you're doing, getting better, better or not. Uh, and then the other point about just, you know, keep it simple, stupid, right? Which, um, I know it's funny because it reminds me when I was in college, I had a professor who, who he would flip it around. He used to say, keep it stupid, simple, <laughs> which is kind of, <laughs> kind of the same thing. But, but again, the, the idea of don't overcomplicate things, you know, like, break it down into manageable pieces, right? Because that's, that's really, and I think that's a lot of what Keith talks about in his books and like on the DVDs is when you take the whole subject and you analyze it and you break it down and you tackle the pieces one at a time and master them in, in succession, you actually can accomplish an amazing amount. You can progress quite rapidly in not too long a period of time. And I, I guess in part, you know, he applies that to his superbike school, you know, where he, he, you know, basically when I talked to him, he said that, you know, pretty much everybody gets better. Everybody will say at the end that they've improved. And if they don't, they get some more free training, you know, so that they, they do improve. So I think that's kind of some, some really good points. It kind, of, it kind of comes back to that point about being lazy. Like people think they can yeah. watch, watch a DVD or, or something and that it's all just going to soak in and they just go ride and everything's going to be great, but that's just not, just not how it works. Not how it works. <laughs> yeah. yeah so, and, and that's actually something I try to incorporate into my academy is to break everything down so people don't have to sit there and, you know, watch watch everything and expect to take it all in. Just just take a bit of that and then try and apply that one thing. And again, like you said, it, it's going it, to, it, it sounds counterintuitive, but you will get more results more quickly. Yeah. No, no, that, that totally makes sense. The, uh, the other thing you brought up on the vision thing is interesting because I was just reading in a twist of the wrist, you know, a section where he's talking about vision and like more importantly, like drills, exercises you can do to improve your field of vision and your ability to, you know, be aware of things in your peripheral vision and like how much attention you have on what you're seeing and, and what you're focusing on. And, the point I'm getting to, it was really interesting because in watching Isle of Man, you know, and like I said, I've only seen it on TV. I've never been there live, but I've often looked at it going, how in the heck do these guys do it? Like, I don't, I mean, I could go, you know, ride a motorcycle around the Isle of Man. That'd be cool. But when you look at the speed that these guys are at and how they're pushing it, I'm like, how the heck do they do it? Things must happen so fast. And what Keith talks about, and, and what you're getting to with vision and what you said before answers the question. And I was like, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. Because if you've got a good field of vision and you're looking far ahead and you're focused on the correct things and not paying attention to things that don't matter, then the perception of speed, like it kind of slows down, like you, you have more time to think more time to react. And I was like, OK, it doesn't mean I think I could go do what they're doing. But I was like, wow, that totally made sense. Yeah, you, you can at least understand Yep. how they're, they're getting close to that level kind of thing and 
it, yeah, it's even more important what was saying about how vision keeps you safe at those speeds in in those tunnel view kind of roads. It's even more important because you get lost going, you get visually lost going 160 mile an hour down one of those roads. Yeah, you're in trouble. You're toast. You're toast. I mean, you're dead basically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, so um, kind of as we as we wind down here, so actually I have a, a listener, Adrian Northam, who uh, who sent me we were messaging back and forth, and and he had a couple things he asked he actually asked me to do like episodes on regarding motorcycle technique, and one I don't know that I know enough about them or I could talk enough to make full episodes, but I thought you know with with you on the podcast, it's an excellent opportunity to talk about them, sure. so. The first thing he brought up was trail breaking. So let me kind of, I'm going to kind of put myself out on a limb here and let me kind of tell you what I understand about trail breaking. And then you can kind of let me know if I kind of got the right idea and like anything you want to add to it. So one of the things that helped me in understanding trail breaking is I saw it referred to as trail off breaking. You know, the, the idea of having brakes applied and then letting go of brake pressure as you're going through the turn. And so once I saw that term, I was like, okay, that makes more sense to me. Like I understood what the trailing was about. The The other thing, the understanding I have is, so it, it's kind of interesting. And, and the more I learn about motorcycle dynamics, the more fascinating I, I get about it. But right, the, the basic idea that when, when you're braking and slowing down the motorcycle, you're transferring weight to the front and you're, you're compressing the forks, right? You're, you're compressing the front suspension. And so the thing I cognited on, and maybe again was when I was reading Twist of the Wrist last night, is how that relates to trail braking, right? Because when, when you're cornering, right, you want good traction. In order to have good traction, you need to have the, com- the suspension compressed, right? Because that's what's giving you cornering force, basically. And it, it's interesting because, and I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes, but um, Ken Ayanach, right, who I believe is from um, Yamaha, uh, Yamaha Championship School or whatever it's called. Yeah, he, he's got a cool YouTube video. Maybe you've seen it called "100 Points of Grip," where he takes a tire just off the off the rim, you know, but it's a motorcycle tire, and he he demonstrates. You know, he, he's on a happens to be on a track, and he takes the tire and he leans it over, and without any applying any force to the tire, he just like you know, he's got his hand on the top of the tire. The tire is leaned at an angle. He just bangs his hand, and the tire slides out basically it goes down right because there's not very much grip or traction then what he does is he applies some force to the tire like you would do you know cornering you know under braking and whatever right so that he's loading the tire and then hits it and he can hit it as hard as he wants and the tire doesn't slide out right so thinking with that so so the kind of what i got out of it and again you could tell me how much i'm on track with this is what i was looking at is so what trail braking i guess does is so your trick, you're, you're sorry. You're you're breaking right. You're end of your straightaway or whatever, and you're breaking into the turn, and you're compressing the suspension. Now, if your suspension is fully compressed, then you're not going to have much. You you have no ability to compress the suspension as you go around the corner for cornering, right? And so one of the things that the, and the Keith was talking about in in the book was also the idea of I forgot how he put it basically, but the idea was not unsettling the bike too much, right? What, what you don't want to have is you don't want to be controlling the bike so that the suspension is compressing and rebounding and compressing and rebounding because you get like a yo-yo effect and you lose control. 
So I was like looking at it going, okay, so you're heartbreaking, you're loading the suspension, and then as you're starting to corner where you also want to load the suspension, you're easing off on the brake so that you're getting kind of, as you're getting less compression from braking, you're starting to get compression from cornering and, and yep. you know, your, your cornering forces. And like when, when I, I was like, wow, that totally makes sense now. <laughs> like, I'm not saying I could do it well because you know, I've tried trail braking and I, it will take a lot of practice. It was like, now it makes sense, you know? Yeah, in terms of yeah, in terms of keeping the bike stable, yeah, all you're doing is replacing the force that comes from braking with the force that comes from cornering. Okay. So yeah, I like to say is that lean angle and brakes and actually throttle as well are indirectly correlated. So mm-hmm. if you want to use more of one, you have to remove some of the other. So right. In the case of trap braking, yeah, as you say, if you want to add lean angle, you need to take some force off the brakes. Right. 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 Okay. Cool. All right. So yeah, that's because it's one of those, it's like counter steering. Like the first time I heard about counter steering, I was like, I was like, what the heck are they talking about? And particularly because, you know, the way I heard it explained was, and I, I know it makes sense if you understand the context, but it's like, you know, push right, go right. And I'm like, wait, push what? What are you pushing? Right. But then when, when I like looked at it, right. And I, I used to, as a kid, I used to ride bicycles all the time. Right. So right, riding a two wheel vehicle, like a bicycle, you just intuitively understand counter steering. But then when I looked at it, it's like, okay, well, what I want to do is I want a corner to the right. And so therefore I want the bike to lean to the right. And if for that to happen, guess what? I have to turn to the left. It's just, it's like just how it, that's how it works. It's the physics of it, you know? Um, but, but it takes, you know, either working that out for yourself or having someone explain it in a way that you can absorb it. Otherwise it's just, again, it's like a big, it's like a mystery. Like people are like, go counter steering. What is it? Like it's some mysterious thing, you know? Yeah, and actually, even just 10 years ago when I started riding, counter-steering was talked about, at least in like your usual magazines, it was talked about like it was something separate from the normal way of riding, but yeah, yeah, that's just the way motorcycles work. And, right. and that's the, the most basic way you can say it, is that if you want to go to the right, you push on the right handlebar, and it's going to lean to the right, and you're going to turn. Yeah. And yeah, with, with trail braking, it's, it seems to be a real buzzword at the moment, and I'm not entirely sure why, because people have been doing it for decades now okay mm-hmm. um but there's definitely a lot of emphasis on it at the moment so i'm guessing that's probably why this question has come up for you but yeah yeah, yeah it's definitely a valuable skill um to learn both on road and, and track yeah sure so all right so adrian hopefully that helped in in understanding trail breaking um and then the the other thing he you know was curious about or wanted some more information about is tank slappers um, I know that's something you know, I see a lot of YouTube videos, especially guys on sport bikes, you know, on yeah, usually, scary. usually, usually out on public roadways and stuff, right. Where basically I, I guess you would describe it as, you know, an, an oscillation in the, the front fork and handlebars, right. Where your steering is, is going to extremes. Like it's going hard to the left, I, I guess, usually, you know, up against the stop, right. Or the tank, right. I guess that's where the term tank slapper comes from because your handlebar would hit the tank. Yeah. I'm not- I don't think. Know where where that term come from? Because yeah, I guess so. It's it's your hands hitting the tank because you're trying to. Uh, uh, okay, <laughs> right. Um, but so it's that idea of the the steering oscillating pretty violently, you know, from from far left to far right, you know, lock to lock, kind of back and forth. Now, I, I guess like there's a number of things that can cause that, right? Like obviously there could be something wrong with the suspension. 
or you know sometimes people have modified a motorcycle and not understanding what they're doing like switching tire sizes or something um but what what other causes could you have the biggest one that i see on the track is basically people being too aggressive with the handlebars when they're coming out of corners mm-hmm. so okay. obviously when you're coming out of a corner you're going to be accelerating and if you've got a powerful bike that's going to be sending all the weight to the back and you've got very little weight on the front what people tend to do because they're not as loose on the bars as they should be is they pull the wheel out of alignment mm-hmm. so as the as the front wheel is just skipping along or maybe it's even lifted if you've got like a big liter bike as it comes down and tries to realign itself that's when it's it just turns into this little wobble or maybe a full-on tank stuff it just depends how much the bike is trying to correct itself and how good the steering damper is right um, on the street i'm not sure i could say confidently enough what exactly causes it because there's so many more variables on the on the street as to what people are doing and, and yeah. surfaces and all that kind of stuff but to my understanding it's basically the the front and rear wheels aren't tracking together anymore and it's basically the bike's attempt to try and sort itself out and mm-hmm. if if it if it has to throw the wheel quite a long way to try and realign itself that's when you get that oscillating because it's just the momentum of the wheel is just sending it backwards and forwards as it tries to realign itself. Right. Gotcha. And so I guess that probably has something to do, right, with like the the, the rake, you know, the, the the angle of the forks, right, from vertical. And I don't yeah. know, I guess, I guess if your front end is too steep, that's going to make the problem worse because. Yeah. 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 Okay. If you front end, it's more prone to that kind of thing. Right. And then. You got to another point, you know, regarding the rider, right? And like how tightly they're gripping the handlebars. Like in, in your experience, like is is it something that's made worse or maybe even caused? Well, it kind of sounds like it can, like a, a rider, particularly like a track rider could cause it, right? Because they're they're holding too tightly onto the handlebars. And so they're not letting the suspension do what it needs to do to keep the bike stable and tracking. Yeah, exactly. Um, so Okay. So what people try and do is, again, as they're coming out the corner, they'll try and heave their weight back onto the bike. <clears throat> right. But because they don't have a proper setup with a lower body, they start to rely on the bars to do that. So they'll pull and push on the bars to try and get their weight onto the bike. And in yep. doing that, that's when they turn the front wheel because there's not very much weight on it. Yeah. And then, again, when the weight comes back to the front, let's say when you change gear, that's when it starts to get into problems. Right. Yep, because I I know I've seen or I've seen mentioned like you know a reason street riders will get into that trouble like if they're doing a wheelie and then they they set the bike down and they're either you know they've turned the front wheel or they're holding onto it so when it touches down it can't just straighten out and in which case you're kind of fighting the bike and and I would guess in some cases at least on the street that's what's happening is you know like you said the the motorcycle is essentially you know it is a stable if it's functioning properly it it stabilizes itself right just because of the physics of how it works but if if the the wheel moves and then the the rider tenses or fights it i could see you know getting this kind of weird feedback thing you know where the the rider is basically causing the tank slapper yeah the the riders the riders on top of the bikes can create so many problems Um, yeah (laughs) right And on, and on the street as well, when you've got powerful bikes and conditions aren't always great, I would guess a lot of the videos that you see on YouTube of these big tank slappers come from people accelerating hard on big powerful bikes over not great roads. That's probably but true. But generally speaking, yeah, a bike is going to be... If you're riding sensibly, then you 
really shouldn't get into this problem too much. Right. Okay. So then, so his question about how you avoid it, I, I guess, is a couple of things, right? One is understand how the motorcycle works. Two, don't, you know, don't have a death grip on your handlebars. Yeah. Um, you know, learn, learn the proper technique, you know, ride correctly. Um, yeah. And like you said, you know, and I've mentioned this in a prior episode, some people, and I guess most race bikes will have a steering damper, right? So that, yeah, that's set up. Particularly bigger bikes, yeah. Yeah. So that basically it's a device, you know, it does what it says. It, it dampens that kind of motion. So if that, if you're in a situation where you could develop into a tank slapper, the, the damper kind of slows down that oscillation so it can't go, you know, wild and violent like that. So, yeah. All right, cool. So thank you for that. So Adrian, hope that hope that answered your questions. And if not, let me know, and uh, we'll do what we can to answer any other questions you have on that. So Dan, before uh, before we wrap up for the evening, um, any final advice you have either for new riders? You know, like it's one of the things I do, right? Is I created the podcast to help new riders out, or you know, just street riders, or you know, people new to track riding or you know, track days that want to get started. Yeah, I mean, this is this is going to be very in keeping with a lot of what we talked about. But just learn, um, whether it's from a coach, from a school, or you just have a trusted source that you feel is putting out good stuff. Just learn, because that in itself is going to be the best first step to becoming a better rider and riding safely. And just expecting to get better without doing the work, because it is work, really. It's a skill, like I said, it, it's stuff that you want to improve then don't be lazy and just just learn about it because that's that's going to be the best step to keeping yourself safe right and that, actually that's a good point about about safety because you know I, I, like on my podcast we talk a lot about safety and and not being lazy maybe is one of you know wear gear and all that stuff for sure but not being lazy might be one of the most important things yeah again because there's a lot of there's a lot of unknowns for people and you know, I get the questions come in and, and people can't, they, they don't have the confidence or they're scared to do stuff. And then you think, or then you ask, sorry, what, what have you learned to this point? And they say, well, nothing. So the reason you don't have confidence is because you don't know what you need to be doing in the first place. Mm-hmm. Just starting to take that stuff in and learning what you can and can't do on the bike, what is and isn't safe, all that stuff. That all feeds into your confidence. And it also means you're going to be more safe because you're doing the right things with the bike itself. Right. Yeah. No, good point. Good point. Awesome. Awesome. Um, any Anything else you wanted to cover or go over that we didn't touch on? Uh, no, not like I can think of. Okay. Good. Cool. I think, yeah, I think, uh, I think we covered the bases. It's really, really been awesome. I, I'm hoping, I hope, I'm hoping the listeners get as much out of this as I have. <laughs> it's been, it's been cool just having a chance to talk to you. Um, if people want to contact you, what's the best way? Uh, if you want to ask me, question about absolutely anything then you can just go to my uh website which is life at lean.com and i'm guessing you're gonna chuck a link in the bottom here but oh absolutely yeah just uh there's, you'll see a button for contact you can just get in touch with me there um in terms of my best content then most of that's going to be on youtube so just search for life at lean on youtube and you'll see a bunch of stuff that you can jump into and start learning okay awesome cool so dan it's been a pleasure thank you thank you very much for doing this um you know, like I said, I'm I'm looking forward to doing some track days, and uh, I'm sure once I get started doing that, I'll have lots and lots of questions for you. <laughs> yeah, where I am. <laughs> awesome, awesome. All right, so thank you again, and uh, 
you could you could hang on a minute. We could chat a little bit after after I stop the recording. But uh, have a good evening and uh, good night, everyone. Thank you again to Dan Netting for joining me on the show. I hope you all enjoyed the interview as much as I did. As always, thank you to everyone who's written in. If I haven't mentioned you on the show yet, I will in a future episode, but I do answer everyone's emails and messages personally as soon as I can, usually the same day. If you haven't already, please drop me an email or fill out the contact form on my website or message me in Facebook and let me know that you're out there and anything you want to let me know about the show. You can email me at soyouwanttoride at yahoo.com or use the link in the podcast notes to my website, so you want to ride a motorcycle.com, where you find all my contact details. I do still have stickers available. Uh, more and more people are asking for stickers, so um, I am shipping them out, which is, which is cool. And uh, when I get a chance, I post photos of uh, the sticker on people's motorcycles, like on my Facebook page and Instagram. So definitely, if you'd like some stickers, you know, please email me your mailing address, and I'll get some out to you. You can help me promote the podcast. If you'd like to help support the podcast, you can make a donation using PayPal by going to paypal.me slash Christopher Geis or click the donate link at the upper right side on my website. Please like and leave me comments and a rating on your favorite podcast service. That'll help other people find my podcast. Please like and follow me on Facebook and Instagram. You can just search for So You Want to Ride or find the links on my website. But please keep spreading the word and help me build my online and listener communities. Thank you for listening, and just remember, whatever you do, it's always time to ride.